tuning in to the online broadcast network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads from over 200 countries and your number one source in after-show entertainment. AfterBuzz TV, the destination for TV superfans. Producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows. Interviewing celebrities and showrunners. And bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! Hey guys, welcome into the Manhattan After Show right here on AfterBuzz TV and AfterBuzzTV.com. You're watching Season 1, Episode 8. The, t- the show is called The Second Coming. I'm your host, Bobby DeMiro, along with Marissa Serafini. She's in the booth tonight. Marissa, how are you doing? What's up, everybody? Yes, running the ones and twos today. Doing a little engineering while we're yeah. hosting the show, but we're both here, so it's all good. So, uh, Marissa, we got a lot to talk about. First things first, we've been getting a lot of comments on iTunes, a lot of ratings on iTunes. We'll give a shout-out later in the show, but thank you very much for doing that. If you haven't already, you can subscribe on iTunes and or YouTube if you're watching the video. Keep up with everything we do here on AfterBuzz for Manhattan and the literally hundreds of other shows that AfterBuzz does. Uh, let's jump into it right now, though, Marissa. Not a lot of, not too much intro to talk about. Um, Let's talk about these Brits. The British are invading. The British are coming. The first British invasion, not the Beatles, uh, but the one before it in the 40s, <laughs> were these scientists here at Los Alamos coming to uh, to America to work. And we meet Hogarth, and, and we don't meet any other British scientists, but we hear about them. What do you make, Marissa, of the British delegation? Is it going to help? We find out at the end of the show, you know, what's going on. But do we think the British delegation is going to help moving down the road moving forward? I think so, yes, because we know... Britain is our ally. They've always been our ally. And especially during World War II, they were, we were allies with them because Germany invaded Britain. So, you know, just the time period of everything, I do believe, I mean, we may not have seen a lot of progression this particular episode, but I do think eventually down the road we will get some of those Britain, those British scientists that they were trying to, you know, gather to help um, in this project. And, and let's talk Hogarth, because Hogarth is really the star of the show for this one. Obviously, a couple episodes ago, you know, Niels Bohr makes a guest appearance. Now we've got kind of Hogarth making a guest appearance. We will see if Hogarth uh, sticks around, if we see him with any consequence the next few episodes. But in the same way as Niels Bohr did it, the, the, the Niels Bohr story, Hogarth adds a lot of energy to the show for me. I, he's a jerk. I know we're supposed to hate him, and we do, but I liked having him here. I liked having another, just another mind, another person to play off of. The Charlie Frank relationship can get wary. It can get old, so I'm glad we have Hogarth. I, he added a lot for me. It, w- it was interesting. He did add a different dynamic to this episode, particular episode, but the thing is he added a more negative dynamic, and that... I didn't like because when you see uh, Niels Bohr come in, he was very positive. He influenced everyone just in the short amount of time he was there. And and then this one, you can see, you know, one poison apple affects everybody. Yeah. And just the fact that even Frank was willing to go all these, you know, dirty routes to just have Hogarth have any help to work on this project. It's it's a little disturbing. Well, and Frank... Frank, I think, thinks that Hogarth maybe is a little more powerful, a little smarter than he is. And it was good that Crosley, near the end of the show, sort of brought Frank back to reality that says, you know, hubris cuts both ways. Hogarth is right about me, but he's wrong about implosion. 
you know, that conversation that they had, because I think Frank put all of his eggs in the Hogarth basket. And, and we see he still is at the end when he's drinking and working on those chalkboards himself to do Hogarth's uh, equations, to do Hogarth's math and sees that it doesn't work. So Frank's a little down by the end of this and Hogarth, Hogarth has brought him down. And that's what you're talking about. A bad apple ruins the bunch. One negative person kind of brings down everybody else. I know this is war and there's stress and there's anxiety and there's all sorts of different things, but Hogarth really did change the energy. For us as viewers, it was fun to see him because he's, he's kind of a jerk, but for, for everybody in Los Alamos, he's a tough guy to have around, and it remains to be seen what he ends up doing with Akeley. Remember now, he said no one will join the implosion team. So Yeah, but also, to add to that, not to like just be a hater of Hogarth, he did add the... Um, the perspective that Frank finally got that implosion will not work. Yeah. As much as I want it to work, and all the calculations and all this time I've spent into ho- um, into implosion, it will not work. No one knows how to do it. No one knows how to actually execute it. So he did help Frank have that revelation. Now, I've got to wonder, though. We obviously know how the story ends. Everybody knows what happened in World War II. Spoiler alert, Germany and Japan lose. Uh, but I've got to wonder, in real time in this situation, if this was actually going on at Los Alamos and the equations said that Akeley's bomb wasn't working and it was mathematically impossible and the equations said implosion was mathematically impossible, at what point do they give up or completely start from scratch? We know how it ends in the real world. This does end up working. But if you're there in real time in the 40s, in the early 40s, at what point do you say, wait a minute, we've been off track the whole time. Do we start over? Do we scrap the whole project? Is Los Alamos gone? Do we need to find another way? I'm not sure about what point because they are scientists. They crunch the numbers first and they do all the calculations. But and, and all the calculations I mean, are wrong now, though, is what I'm that, saying. Yeah. But but that's the good thing because they they are smart enough to realize that their calculations are wrong instead of doing the calculation, then actually tr- testing it out and have it literally implode on themselves yeah. and then die. I yeah. mean that they at least they're smart enough to figure it out the first step before it gets you know it, it escalates to the point where there are fatalities just in trials. Yeah, I guess we'll, and I guess we'll see what happens. Obviously, at the end, we'll talk about Charlie in a second, but this Charlie and Frank relationship, which, which we should hit on in this Hogarth section, is at the end, Charlie and Frank kind of come together. And I know this is prediction territory, and we can talk about it more in depth later, but very briefly for you, Marissa, do you think that Charlie walking into Frank's place at the end of the episode tonight, is that an indication that Charlie is now coming to Frank's team? I'm not sure about coming to Frank's team per per se, but definitely Charlie being the willing to help Frank, Hank, uh, Frank to help him. You know, the willing to work with each other because they, in the end, they are all still working on the same end result. Uh, result. They had the same objective, and it's just because we see at the beginning of the season that Charlie was so against for Frank's team, you know, and he wasn't wanting to work with the so-called rejects, air quotes, but now. The, the fact that Charlie realizes his project's not working, Frank realizes his project's not working, hey, we, we have a problem here, let's work together. And thank God for Theodore Sinclair. That's a great wrinkle in this story that Charlie got the message out to him. We knew a couple weeks ago we probably weren't going to see the end of Theodore. He was going to come back around, and he does. Great scene with Charlie. Well, let's hold off on the Charlie and Akeley scene, actually. I, I was jumping the gun a little bit. Let's finish up on Hogarth before we do that. 
Um, first things first on Hogarth, we learned a lot about Paul Crosley. We didn't know as much about Crosley until today, especially his backstory, and we start learning a little bit about just how bitter Hogarth is towards Crosley in a very, very ugly scene in, I guess you'd say, the brothel when they get in a physical fight. Uh, that was ugly all around. I don't think there's any winners between the two of those guys in that scene. No, and it makes the audience have a completely different view of Crosley. Yeah. And Paul, I'm like, okay, we know Paul's the British guy. He's kind of fish out of water in Frank's team. I mean, they all are in their own certain ways. But we kn- we didn't know how. And the fact that they add, I love how they keep adding more backstory to each of, you know, Frank's members, which is great. And then the fact that they, you know, they gave him a son that he has never known and added, it added just more character layers to him. I liked it a lot with Crosley. We learn about each one of them, sort of episode to episode, Fritz, Helen, Crosley, it all kinds of comes together. Uh, didn't get to learn too much about Sid Lau. I guess we did learn about him. I shouldn't say that. We learned a lot about Sid Lau. He just, you know, departed the show early. Yeah. Um, but here's the other thing with Crosley. It's interesting to see is antagonistic as Crosley can be with everybody, with Fritz, with everybody else, uh, with Frank himself. Crosley's also a good buddy and knows who's knows where his bread is buttered, I guess you'd say, with that team. Because Hogarth goes to be with Jeannie, who's Fritz's, you know, girl. Uh, unbeknownst to the girl, maybe. But Hogarth goes to be with her, and Crosley shuts it down. And that's the impetus for that fight scene. And it speaks not but only... that was good on Paul, you know. Oh, exactly. And it speaks, But it speaks not only to Paul really hating the way Hogarth is, but also how strongly Paul feels about his team. Even if he makes fun of Fritz, even if they don't see eye to eye, even if they have this, you know, con- not contentious, but somewhat distant relationship, Crosley's still close enough to Fritz to be loyal and in turn make sure Fritz's girl is loyal if he can help it. Yes, absolutely. So, good on Paul for that one. Good good wingman. Um, Hogarth, on the other hand, in this situation, kind of a womanizer, huh? I, I know you're not getting not kind any. kind of, he is. But, dude, you know, I know you're not, you weren't having fun being bombed out in London or whatever. I'm not trying to, you know, say you shouldn't have an excuse for that because that's probably a hellacious experience. But, settle down a little bit, man. You got you got work to do here in, uh, here in Los Alamos. And, and that's the thing. I was surprised with Frank because, it, again, it shows the limits he's willing to go to to have any help on his team to help execute this project. Saying Frank will do whatever, even if it means getting Hogarth multiple prostitutes. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And it, like the immoral lanes that he will go to. Yeah. No, absolutely. And Frank, and you could see Frank wrestling with that in that scene when he hears Hogarth having sex. He's with Helen and Crosley, and he lets it go for a while, and he lets it go for a while, and then he's like, I can't take it anymore. Tell me when Big Ben strikes 12 or whatever. Yeah. Frank finally loses it. So even though he lets it happen and, and sort of indulges it in a way he clearly doesn't enjoy it it clearly bothers bothers him but he knows in the weights of his world the weight of finding out this implosion thing is far more important than any moralistic thing any ethical thing any you know social or cultural thing he needs to find out this implosion thing above literally everything else including his marriage which didn't come up today but that's where frank's at yeah and the fact that hogar is still at the end of that he got to sleep with all those people but the i was just unsatisfied with the end result that i mean we know that hogarth helped frank had that revelation but the fact that he's like hey i still got to sleep with these men your project's still not gonna work yeah yeah so hogarth that was unsettling hogarth gets to have his cake and eat it too yeah in a way but he got what he wanted and 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 maybe he got what he wanted from akeley too maybe akeley akeley wined and dined him in a different way and courted him in a different way whether it was that old bottle of wine hogarth mentioned or the filet mignon that frank had mentioned earlier whatever it is hogarth is is uh from what we can see 
Hogarth looks to be a bit of a glutton, and he used that gluttony to his full advantage. And then we'll see moving forward if Hogarth can do anything positive to benefit the project, whether it's implosion or not. I don't. I, I have my doubts yeah, about it. Absolutely, and he t- he's an opportunist. Yeah, he takes advantage of people. He knows that Frank can help him get in prostitutes. He knows that Crosley can probably pay for his dinners and whatnot. So like, he sees someone who could probably help him, and he'll go for it. And 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 remember, though, he is an opportunist, and he is manipulating people. But he does have a good reason with Crosley in a way, because if it's true that Crosley. You know, walked out on Hogarth's daughter who had a son with him and walked away. So Hogarth has a reason to be upset. For that reason, I can understand it. However, he may not be going about this the most mature way. I'm not saying that, you know, you or I wouldn't do the same thing maybe if we were mad, but he's probably not going about it the most mature way, but he doesn't really look that mature to begin with. Yeah. So, My, I, I have a question for you. Yeah. Do you think we're going to see more of the Brit- British scientists to come and help? Because the, the original group that came over to Los Alamos, apparently they were the B group. They weren't even the A team. Yeah. So where is the A team? What are they working on? Or will we get anyone from the A team I, besides Hogarth? There's two ways to answer this question. I guess story-wise is one. And then the other way is from like a historical, cultural American perspective. Because this is an American show, because America did what America did in World War II, I know that the Allies together work together, not just on the A-bomb and whatever else, but work together on the war effort. All the Allies did, obviously. But I think here in America, this may sound weird, but here in America, we have a very, very proud and very specific memory of what we accomplished in World War II. And I'm saying that because this. I think that this show will portray the British scientists not necessarily in a negative light, but in kind of a bumbling, stumbling, mediocre, middle-of-the-road light. There will be no brilliant British scientists to come in this show. They will all have problems. They will not be good enough, yada, 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 because I think this show is going to stick close to the the American story. The Americans did it. The Americans figured it out. The Americans won the war effort. We sacrificed. We we survived. We persevered. All those things are true. The Americans also had a lot of help. I think it's a, a kind of a gray area. It wasn't just America winning the war. We had help, but America also did a lot. I don't know where the, you know, where reality functions in there, but I think in terms of how Americans see it, America really led the charge, you know, whether that's totally correct or there's some intricacy there. America led the charge. And because of that, and this is an American show, I think any British scientist we see will be kind of a B-teamer. So to answer your question, no, I don't think the cavalry comes back from Britain. I don't think we get great scientists. I think this is America's project, America or bust. And of course, we know America wins. So, yeah. And it also shows, I mean, I, I kind of agree now, too. But it also, I liked how they f- showed that Americans were willing to resource and yeah. go out there and are outsourced more so to, we, to help ex- execute it. And listen, we love America. This is not America bashing. I mean, America, obviously, of all the allies, you could argue, at least on the A-bomb effort, America played the biggest role in ending this and doing this. That being said, though, it wasn't just an America thing. I think, I, I just don't think that an American show talking about an American period of history in America about this A-bomb so specifically is... is we'll focus on Britain. We'll focus on Britain or anybody else. I think it's an America versus Axis power story. It's America versus Germany, America versus Japan. And yeah, the Allies are there. The British are there. The French are there. You know, we saw LED as a French woman, but we haven't seen too many French soldiers or anything. Yep. Other powers are there, but I think they're definitely going to play second fiddle. 
Um, because frankly, I think an American audience doesn't not and this is not a criticism, but American audience doesn't want to see a British team of scientists. This is an American story. We dropped the A bomb. You know, the Enola Gay was an American plane. We dropped the A bomb in yep. Japan. Give us the credit for doing that. So I, I don't think we see too many other countries, too many other scientists in that significant of a realm, except for maybe like a Niels Bohr. You know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Or, or Einstein. I don't know. Yeah. So, although Einstein, I guess, had kind of emigrated to America, so maybe technically he's American, anyways. And, right? <laughs> and Einstein helped with the start of yeah. Manhattan. Yeah. So, which we and we haven't seen him yet, which is interesting. Yeah, and I, you know, I think I predicted or wanted to see Einstein, but Einstein really played a part at the beginning. Yeah. Of project uh, Manhattan Project, and already we're in the middle of it. So I don't know who who knows. Maybe they will bring him. And I feel like I know we've talked about this, but it's got to be difficult to find somebody to portray Einstein. There are just certain people in history. Like, how do you portray Jesus, Abraham Lincoln, Einstein, Martin Luther King? Like, when you see people like that on TV being portrayed by an actor, people can do it very, very well, and they have in the past. But it's tough to find the right person with the right look and the right speech and the right you know whatever it is einstein's got to be a tough guy to portray he's just so ubiquitous you have your idea in your head of what he is how do you how do you put that on camera and appease everyone watching it's tough yep so maybe they shied away from him for a reason for maybe it's something as simple as that i'm just obviously speculating uh let's talk a little bit about liza now we've got a big topic on charlie and akeley which we'll get to in a minute but let's talk about liza first um I guess let's let's talk about the elephant in the room with Liza. What was she hospitalized for? What was the disorder of the mind? What was his institution situation? What do what could possibly be going on with that? That's very questionable. I mean, maybe depression. Who knows? Because even at that time, depression wasn't really well diagnosed, and it there could be a million different things, and especially the fact that like she still isn't treated correctly um, because you know they. They said her degree her um, means nothing there, really, mm-hmm. and the fact that she can't get her credentials. So, and it might be just the fact that she's living there and kind of like the ex- cabin fever to the max might add to the depression. I mean, I kind of know what that's like. Yeah. Um. So I, I'm guessing. Well, I shouldn't say guess, but like I'm speculating maybe depression, something mental that is. You can't really pinpoint it. It's not a tangible thing. That's I, I kind of agree with you, but I also think that I don't know if in that time period or earlier when she might have been hospitalized in the 20s or 30s, I don't know if they would have put somebody in a hospital for depression like that. It would have had to have been – I don't know if it was you know a schizophrenia or something else, but I think it would have had to have been more of a outwardly visible situation. Um, the other alternative, and I don't know if this is true, and if it were, I don't know if they'd even let her into Los Alamos. What if it is a war-related, quote-unquote, disease of the mind, disorder of the mind? What if it's something akin to you know, communism or, or some other worldview or political view that was at that time deemed anti-American? And she's put into an institution to, you know, quote unquote, clear her mind or cure her of that. And I don't know if it's, you know, obviously the Cold War is going to happen after World War II. So I don't know if it's communism itself, but just something like that where she's a sympathizer for somebody in some way where she shouldn't be or she's perceived to be a sympathizer. We know how, you know, academics get treated sometimes in history and situations like this and stereotypically looking at academics as, you know, uh, hyper liberal, you know, again, a Cold War thing, communist sympathizers and whatever. This is an era before that. But I can't help but wonder if it's maybe something kind of similar to that or related in the same vein but with a different 
worldview. You know, she may have she may have a skeleton in her past that that they call a disorder of the mind, but for us is actually a political view or a worldview or something else she's done that may be deemed anti-American. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I was also thinking maybe it was something al- along your lines that maybe back in her past she protested against something that would be deemed un-American yeah. and that would be said it was some certain men- mental situation that caused her to do that. So who knows what I hope they touch upon that because they can't just drop a little detail like that and leave us hanging for so long. And remember, World War One. We've already seen Frank's flashback to World War One. He was young enough to be a soldier. He had it was either before college or he had left college to do it. I can't remember which one, but he was in his late teens, early twenties. Liza would have been about the same age. So could it have been protesting World War One? You know, anti-war activities, something that the government may have deemed anti. American at that point, and she gets dinged Therefore, on, institutionalized. Exactly. She gets dinged on some sort of list. She gets institutionalized. It goes on her record or whatever it is, and they know that about her past. So maybe there's something like that there that the government considers a disorder of the mind. How how could you be anti-American? That's a disorder of the mind. Maybe it was something like that. We don't know. Yeah. Um, the other question I have with Liza in this situation is, what about this Stanley Church guy? I assume when Stanley gets confronted, when the polygrapher gets confronted, I assume the implication about everybody having secrets, you don't have a wife, we're bachelors, you're an old bachelor, I assume the implication is that he's gay, I would guess. I, I didn't really get that, um, I, I, that I ass- notion. I assume that was the blackmail. The blackmail was like, you're not going home to a wife, you don't have a wife. You're a bachelor. What are you going home to? You know, we all have secrets. That was literally that conversation. I assumed that was an implication that, hey, Stanley, you're gay. I know you're gay. I'm going to call you out because in this time period, that wouldn't have been something, you know, easy to be out about, especially in that situation. If if you don't want me to call you out, you need to move Liza's paperwork through. I I, I don't know why, but I thought that might have been the implication with Stanley. Obviously, I don't think we'll, we'll see, see Stanley again. I, I didn't really get that implication only because I thought maybe he was just trying to point pinpoint all these things about Stanley's life. The fact that because you don't have that thing doesn't mean other people can't have that. You That's know? a good point, too. And it, it was just like accusing Stanley of saying hey, they probably have this when they don't and might just be out of jealousy or because Stanley was just bitter. He's a bitter person. He's alone. And it was just like any reason to accuse someone of something. That's actually that's a great point, saying just because you're bitter don't mean you have to take it out on Liza, who's not bitter, but now she is because of what you did. Yeah. Yeah, that's not a bad point either. And, I, and again, I don't think we'll ever probably see Stanley again. Maybe we will. Maybe. But- I mean, he he... There's a lot of polygraph tests there. Yeah, there are. There are. But he does one very specific thing. Um, mm-hmm. So who knows? So it appears that Liza is going to be able to work. I don't know if she's that happy about it. It's weird. Charlie in the vision, again, we'll get to Charlie in a minute, I promise. But Charlie in the vision he had with Akeley and, 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 then, and then later on in the actual meeting with Akeley, Charlie wasn't that happy to be promoted. And then you've got Abby, who's not that happy to get what she's been saying she wanted the whole time. So it's kind of a weird... Uh, you know, once you get what you want, you realize maybe you didn't want it. Uh, we don't know what Abby's reasons are for, or Abby, we don't know what Liza's reasons are for being that way, but whatever it is in Liza's past, it must scare her so much or worry her so much, asking if he had seen her file, if she, if he knew what was going on with her. There must be something very serious there that really scares her that she wants to keep under wraps, and I can't help but wonder, do you think even Frank knows uh, what's going on with Liza. I was just going to say, I was like, if it's so secret to her, Frank probably doesn't even know it either. But yeah. Frank also has his secrets against 
like Liza. like a native woman. Yes, Frank mm-hmm. does have his secrets against Liza. Um, I want more Callie. I want more Callie. I thought we were going to see something from her today. Yep, no. Um, whatever. We did see Dunlavy. Yeah, we did see Dunlavy. Let's actually talk about Dunlavy. Let's start that with Abby. Uh, Abby, we see today, goes to Santa Fe, risky as hell, gets a day trip to Santa Fe, decides she's going to take a train to Albuquerque with her parents. Um, Abby. Abby, Abby, Come on, Abby, Abby. Abby, you're Abby. smarter than that. What do we do with Abby? Seriously, you're an idiot, Abby. What are you doing? I, you, I you mean, she wasn't thinking. I get that she hasn't been with her family for a long time. She's being cooped up in Los Alamos, too. She's probably getting cabin fever. She wants to see family. So I can understand, like, hey, this will be really quick. I won't even be gone for more than so so long that it'd be suspicious. So I understand that mentality. But her being as educated as she is or, like, as common, she has, you know, common sense yeah the fact that like she didn't even pick that up and she even said it herself she's like it's a big risk but i'm still gonna do it anyways abby is flying off the rails because she takes this big risk that she knows is wrong she she helps charlie push through a phone call that she knows she shouldn't do then she listens into it which she was specifically told not to do after she gets caught on the trip she comes back to colonel cox and lies her face off about these cousins that she never knew and makes it seem like it's a bigger ordeal to her personally (laughs) than she than she said it was in the first place that that was good part on Abby to try to weasel her way out of a situation, even though minutes before she's like, I don't even know who they are. I've never seen them. And it worked for her. And then after weaseling out of the situation, lying about it, really not caring about them, she takes this classified document from Dunlavey, which was another awful thing that should not have been done. And then she starts feeling for them. But she doesn't feel for them in the in the in the uh, in the personal sense. She feels for the group, for the million. Who was the person who said the quote? I don't remember who it was. It was a, it was a world leader from centuries ago. I want to say Stalin or centuries from decades ago. I want to say Stalin, but it probably wasn't. Whoever it was said something to the effect of one death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. I'm sure you've heard that quote before. Abby had that moment with Charlie when she was reading the document. She's like, they say there are a million people missing. I don't even know how to feel about that. You know, it's just the magnanimous, the magnanimity of that tragedy. Like, 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 how do you even feel about that? You know, you hear so-and-so dies or a group of people die on the news and you feel terrible. But when it's that many people, like, does that number even register? What is Abby supposed to do? She's confused. And this only made it worse. Yeah. And uh, Joseph Stalin said that. Was it Stalin? Okay. Yeah, thank Stalin. you. Um, I, I agree. I just don't think Abby was thinking smart. And the fact that she even... I mean, yes, she has more empathy towards the whole worldly situation that's going on now. It's just, I also think the fact that she has her hands on classified documents, that's going to bite her in the butt, too. Oh, it definitely is going to bite her in the butt because she's already done things wrong. She's done this day trip. I know Cox let her go on this day trip, but but she's it still wasn't right. I'm sure there's a record of it somewhere that she committed this infraction or whatever you want to call it. And she's had other issues with her. She also had her own polygraph issue, we remember, that hadn't been touched on yet, but I'm sure is going to come back up at some point. So Abby has some problems. We also realize... And and also, sorry. Oh, go ahead. And also, Abby now knows a lot more information than she already should because she listened in on Charlie's conversation. Yeah, she listened in on Charlie's conversation, which was the wrong thing to do. Although at the end of the day, this is a good growing experience for Abby to realize what's going on in the world. We're not here to just kind of make something and my husband's going to 
to work and it's kind of classified. But millions and millions of people are in peril and, and people are dying constantly, both soldiers and civilians. Just because it's not happening at Los Alamos doesn't mean it's not happening. And at least she realizes that now. I don't know that that necessarily makes her a better person. She's not going to reform kind of the, the path she's been going down. She's been a little bit off recently. I think she she's at the point because I think we see when she's talking to Charlie at the end of that work day. You know, I think she knows that Charlie's doing something for the better, for the war, whatever it is that she doesn't know about yet. She yeah. knows in her heart that this will ultimately help and the horribleness of everything that's going on. Yeah, who knows with Abby? I... Who knows? We know she's avoiding Elodie. We know she's changed off the afternoon shift um, at work to avoid Elodie. And then she got the bra in the package, right? Yeah. Which was a little bit of a, okay. It's like, mm, here, here's your bra back. Yeah, that's a bad memory. So I guess we can kind of surmise what happened. I know we speculated between her and Elodie. Maybe they cheated. Maybe they didn't. They probably cheated. Yeah, I think they probably yeah, cheated. They yeah, they did. Sorry, Abby. Bra came off. Or really, sorry, Charlie, as it were. Uh, speaking of Charlie, let's get to Charlie. Uh, let's talk about him and Akeley because Charlie had an interesting situation himself. He gets that phone call out thanks to Abby, even though she ended up listening in. But he gets that phone call out to Theodore. That's a great, great, great line. And you know it's coming. But when Charlie and Akeley are sitting down and and they're talking about you know the reactor and plutonium-240 and all this sort of stuff – and Akeley says, we're good. As long as it's under 300, we're good. And Charlie's like, well, we're at 400. Thousand. <laughs> like that's, you knew that was what, what was coming. It's a perfect like TV moment. But it was still satisfying to see, uh, especially with how Akeley, you know, reacted. It, what do you make first off of the vision that Charlie had? That whole situation with the vision, how aggressive Akeley was, the whole thing about the Jew, the comment about the Jew, the conniving Jew or whatever he said. That's, I know it was obviously a vision and not reality, but that was an interesting way to portray Akeley and an interesting way to shoot that, you know, scene that wasn't actually a scene. I thought it was really well done because when I was watching it, I'm like, whoa, what is going on? I was even stunned, you know, as a regular audience member. But I thought it was it was so well done because, first of all, it made Akeley look like the bad guy. Yeah. Like, he is the, I don't want to say Hitler, but he's the person who's going to kill and bring on the second apocalypse. Um, hence, you know, the second coming poem, which I thought was so well done. The fact that, like, even cinematography, when they cut to Akeley and, like, the low camera angles and the lighting, it shows he's this domineering figure that's going to bring upon, you know, destruction. So I thought it was just really creepy and really well done. And the fact that Charlie is even just thinking it in his mind, if he lets Akeley have this power, he's going to bring destruction. I I think it's interesting that you think Akeley's the bad guy. I know that's how he was supposed to be portrayed, and you're right. I also kind of felt sad for Akeley. In that vision, Akeley then blames Charlie. He's like, Charlie, you're going to be responsible for the deaths of all these people, blah, blah, blah. To me, it made me feel bad for Akeley because it proves that Akeley is the one who feels responsible for that death. Akeley is the one sitting there saying, if Thin Man works, if we make this bomb, we will have achieved our purpose, our objective. But I will literally be responsible for managing people who created the death of millions or whatever they think is going to happen. I think that weighs on Akeley very, very, very heavily. And him doing that to Charlie, albeit in the vision, not in reality, him doing that to Charlie was a very 
sad way, a very, you know, um, just a just a real tragic way, a very unfortunate way of him trying to get the blame off himself. It's not about Charlie. He's not mad at Charlie. He's just so sad and so feeling guilty himself. He has to do that to try to make himself feel better. I really think that's what it is with him. Yeah, al- alleviate the responsibility and the the burden that's on him. Yeah. I it, agree. And there is a burden on him. And the burden on him, and he mentions it near the end, the burden on him is he's no longer even a scientist. He manages people. He's not doing what he was trained to do. He's not doing what he loves. He's in a management role. And we see that weird dichotomy, the great shot between him and Frank. Frank is furiously working with the – you know, they're both drinking alcohol. Frank is furiously working the entire time all night. And Akeley is just like checking his watch, sitting at his desk kind of waiting around. Not that he's not stressed or anything, but Akeley clearly doesn't have as much to do. And I think in a weird way, that weighs on Akeley. He doesn't want to be the flashy guy. I mean, I know he likes the prestige of Thin Man. I know he likes the funding they get and the recognition, but I don't think he wants to be the flashy guy. I think deep down, he still wants to be a scientist. He's been removed from that. And so that just, it exacerbates the guilt. He can't do anything about it. And he's the guy whose head's going to roll if this thing works or if it doesn't. Yep. No, absolutely. And, and the fact that, you know, Akeley did say, hey, you're going to be in charge now. I'm going to go away for a few weeks or to all these places. But, yeah, it's exactly right. He wants to be a field man. Yeah. And, and that's... it's it just shows, like, how everyone, because the place is so small, everyone has to take on different roles and step up and do things that they don't want to. I just got a killer prediction. I've got to write it down or I'm going to forget about it. <laughs> you, you are not even ready in about two minutes when we do predictions okay. what's coming up with that. Um, anything more on Charlie and Akeley? Let me see. I like the second coming, though, the, the yeah. actual poem by the Irish poet W.B. Yeats. Um, I, th- I thought it was very... Um, visually imagery, you know, just and the the way it was, you know, actually recanted. I thought it was really freakishly well done. The the in, the other interesting thing, one last interesting thing, it has nothing to do with these guys. Actually, has to do with Dunlavy. Before we get to predictions, uh, Dunlavy talking to Abby when he gives her the classified documents, and he says, you know, they say that in the Bible, you know, the God rained fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Dot 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 gives her the documents and said, I don't know what he's going to rain on Berlin, which mm-hmm. is chilling because obviously it sets up Abby. He's sort of saying to Abby without saying it, read this only if you're ready. Like, you better be sitting down. This is intense. But also it sort of sets up how much of the focus at this point in in maybe the entire war, not the entire war, but we have the Pacific Theater and the European Theater. All that we know so far in Manhattan itself about the war is the European theater. They're not talking Japanese very much. They're not talking Pacific theater quite as much. I know we've mentioned it a couple times, but it's always Germans, Germans, Germans. What are they going to rain on in Berlin? What is Hitler doing? What is Heisenberg doing? All that kind of stuff. And obviously we know where the atomic bombs were dropped. It was not Germany. So it's interesting, and I can't wait to see the switch. I can't wait to see when we start talking more about the Japanese, if we start talking more about the Japanese. Because in a history, of course, in American history, in the West, in Colorado, in other places in the West, you had internment camps where thousands and thousands of Japanese Americans were interned. Um, I can't wait to see when that shift comes in this show and we start talking more about the Japanese because it's been Germany, Germany, Germany so far. Yeah, I I agree because I was going to say they're going to bring up Japan in some shape or form because we are now hearing about Minsk and Germany and Britain all in one episode. So we have to – and this is World War II, not Germany. 
Um, so, like, I, I can't wait until they bring the Japanese storyline in, just like you said. Yeah, it's going to be, that'll be an interesting thing, too. I don't believe time-wise we are up to, are, are we past December 7th, 1941 already or not? It's it's hard to say because they don't have a specific date title card. We haven't seen dates since the very first moment of the but, very first episode. Yeah, we know it's been a couple months now. Oh, at least. I think it's been more than that. We know there's been – we've seen a lot of parties there in the holiday season now. I'm just wondering if we're going to get a Pearl Harbor you know, perspective from Los Alamos when that happens or if it's already happened and we don't know. But when Pearl Harbor happens, what we're going to hear about and Pearl see – Pearl Harbor already happened. It, it, so it's already done and gone. Well, to Los Alamos. Yeah, because Pearl Harbor is what launched America into World War II, 1941. So, I, no, I know, but, but they'd been studying nuclear stuff for so long before, but this is already this is already in, what, 43? This is 43, and okay. Pearl Harbor happened in 41. Okay, cool. Yeah, so then we're already beyond it. Never mind. Yeah, but um, uh, another uh, factor, I liked how they, they mentioned just a little line that Britain has been working on implosion for years, even before... Hitler even really came to power. Yeah. It was just like something that they studied. Yeah. So the fact that I think Britain has more information than America right now. But apparently it's all the British B-team scientists, so we'll never know. Yeah. So I, so like, hopefully Britain does come back into play. I know you said we probably won't see them. But if they do come back into play, I just want them to help add to the implosion or if that even I just, is a storyline anymore. Or just help with the research that'll help execute this project. Yeah, I hear that. I just don't think they come back into play. I think an American TV show on an American TV network about an American event needs an American hero. And whether that's Charlie, Frank, Akeley, a combination, whatever it is, I think it's I think it's going to be Americans. So, yeah, okay. maybe that's a little mini prediction, but speaking of predictions, let's do it right now, prediction. And now, your after buzz TV predictions. All right, Marissa, I've got a a great one. I don't okay. know if you're ready for it. I hope you're sitting down. Oh, I think I am. <laughs> all right. So we've talked all the time, pretty much every episode, about Charlie and Frank eventually getting together. The mutual respect, even though bad things have happened, the mutual intelligence, the fact that the two of them appear to be smarter than everybody else in camp for various reasons. And we know that they are eventually going to get together. That, to me, is a given. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Now, after talking today about Akeley, how much Akeley hates managing people, how much he wants to kind of be a scientist again, and I think how how tough Akeley is taking this war and this responsibility he has, I could see a situation where Akeley himself might defect with Frank and Charlie and join that team. Oh, so you think Akeley's going to join Frank's as well? Mm-hmm. I could see that situation because Akeley gets sick of managing. He gets sick of being on a flashy team where he doesn't get to do what he loves. He realizes he misses the actual science, the physics, all that sort of stuff. And I could see him one day realizing in one way or another, Frank's on the right path. I'm going to go join Frank's team. Okay. That's a very good prediction. I will add to that. All right. And be not just Akeley and Charlie, but the whole team. I think all of them will eventually get off of their high horses and just work together as a huge team. Like, both of them just merge, and we have a humongous group of scientists, very well-trained, very intellectual, 300-plus men scientists just working together. Instead of butting heads, they're actually working together. And then, and then because Akeley's team gets all the funding, you're saying that effectively Akeley's team, one way or another, would go to Oppenheimer and say... Frank's been right the whole time. Like, that kind of an idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and just the, the manpower that they need to help build the project, because they have the designs. They just need 
to actually physically build it. So I think they're going to use the teams, the all these bodies in that way to just help execute the project. Unless, of course, Hogarth is right and implosion is not the theory. That's the monkey wrench right now is Hogarth has already done the math and it hasn't worked. So we need to figure out if he did something wrong, if he miscalculated something, if he didn't account for something, whatever. Uh, Charlie's been talking about about this plutonium-240 kind of thing. Something else is going on. They have to figure that out in the first place. Yeah. Because if Hogarth's math is right, implosion can't work. I mean, he's, he's figured it out. But yeah. obviously there's got to be something wrong. But before all they merge together... I think there's going to be more fail test explosions um, because we see in the previews for next week that they're looking for detonators and all that, too, because they're at the point where they're building the bombs now, Yeah, which is fun to watch. Yeah, who knows? All right, that's it this week on Manhattan. Marissa, uh, thank you for engineering us, by the way. Of course. Yeah, I mean, we got to. Double duty. Absolutely. So social media, Twitter, and Instagram and all that stuff, where can people find you? You can follow me on Twitter at TV and on a bunch of other after shows, too. Like like literally a bunch, like a dozen. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't even count that high. <laughs> I am on Twitter at Bobby DeMuro, on Instagram at Mr. MR, Mr. Bobby DeMuro. Uh, that's it this week on Manhattan, guys. Season 1, Episode 8. This was the second coming. We'll be back next week for Episode 9. We can't wait for you to join us then. If you haven't already, get on iTunes and YouTube. Hit subscribe. Keep watching. Keep commenting. Thank you very much. We love hearing from you guys. We'll see you a week from today. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 